0: and on our smartphone app, empowering and inspiring community by sharing diverse music, information, and perspectives. Thank you for listening.
1: Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. This is our show we do every fourth of Thursday from four to five. And again, this month is taped, so my listeners won't will not be able to call in. Sometime in the future, I will do live shows, just not just don't know when. So today is taped. Again, as I always do, I plug my Sunday morning short. Pet sounds. It's at 730 in the morning for all those who are awake at 730 on a Sunday morning. It's about three, three to five minutes short covering all sorts of topics at WERU. So today we have the uh, wildlife division director, of the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, Nate Webb. And we're going to be talking about how the citizens of Maine help the wildlife division in, um, in studying the animals and animal life in the state called citizen science program but first I want to say good morning to you Nate how are you good morning and I'm doing great thanks for having me today good thank you for spending time with us as I ask all my my guests how did you get here from there how did you get to where you are now
2: so not not a complicated story I grew up in in central Maine um just a little bit west of Augusta you know it was a an outdoors kid loved being outside, um, camping, hiking, hunting, fishing, canoeing, all those things. Um, so I knew pretty early on, I wanted to have a career that um, would hopefully get me outside as much as possible and allow me to work with nature and with wildlife and considered a few different options. But, um, at some point in high school I realized there was this profession called the wildlife biologist and that sounded pretty good. And I looked into it a little bit more and it seemed like that was right up my alley. So. Ended up going to University of Maine to the, um, the wildlife program up there, which is a really good program that we're very fortunate to have here, here in our state. And, um, you know, it didn't take long for me to, to uh, reaffirm that this was definitely what I wanted to do. Um, so spent four years up there, had uh, some opportunities to work on various research projects, both for grad students at the University of Maine, as well as um, for for Maine Fish and Wildlife, where I work now. Um, it sort of cemented my interest in working for a state fish and wildlife agency. Um, actually, after my time at University of Maine, went out to the University of Alberta um, in Western Canada to graduate school and completed a PhD out there on uh, in wildlife ecology, uh, working on wolves and elk and and other sort of related issues.
1: Congratulations!
2: Um, Banff and Jasper National Parks, which was an amazing la- amazing landscape to work in. Um, then spent a few more years out there working for the provincial fish and wildlife agency, and moved back to Maine in 2014 um, to accept a position with Maine Fish and Wildlife, and have had a few different positions here. Um, and was hired on as the wildlife director about two and a half years ago in in 2019, I guess. So what does the director Um, do? um, You know, there's a lot of variety. So, you know, there's certainly quite a bit of administration. We have about 50 wildlife staff, um, permanent full-time staff, as well as a whole host of contractors and and volunteers. Um, So there's a fair amount of budgeting and sort of personnel management involved um, I'm heavily involved with legislative issues related to wildlife policy and wildlife conservation and wildlife management. Um, I'm, uh, you know, quite involved with a lot of the rulemaking that the department does with regard to, to wildlife conservation. Um, also, you know, try to do the best I can to just support our staff and make sure they have what they need to, do their work. We're extremely fortunate to have, um, uh, you know, an unbelievably talented group of staff, but there's things they need to be successful in their work. So I I try to do what I can to make sure those elements are in place. Um, I also get involved in a lot of, you know, kind of issues that, that crop up, um, from time to time, um, whether they're sort of issues related to public interest with fish and wildlife, um, you know, we occasionally have disease issues that, that crop up or issues with invasive species. So kind of a, a jack-of-all-trades, I guess. I try to be where I'm needed and try to stay out of the way when I'm not needed. So,
1: so as problems crop up, part of your job is to coordinate the people you have to get out to the problem that arises.
2: Absolutely. And I, and I work a lot with other state agencies, um, with uh, you know, with federal agencies, with U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service as well on um, on, you know, both statewide issues as well as regional and some national issues as well. Game wardens, that sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Game wardens, we work hand in hand with game wardens. We work very closely with our um, staff in the department in the fisheries division on aquatic um, habitat issues. We work very closely with our information and education division on public education and outreach and awareness related to, to wildlife management and conservation. So, I interact with dozens and dozens of people on a typical day, and uh, which is one of, the, one of the fun things, all the great people I get to work with.
1: So you, you mentioned that. Uh, this is a good segue. You did, you did it perfectly, Nate, uh, talking about education uh, to the public. And one of the things that you guys have been doing is uh, uh, reaching out to the public to help you gather information. And they, you guys call it, I guess, it's called the Citizen Science Programs. And can you explain to our listeners what a citizen science program is? They may not realize that it's out there.
2: Sure. I think um, I think it's important for me to share um, with listeners just the wide breadth of work that we do and the wildlife species that we're responsible for. Um, you know, I think many people in Maine and probably many of your listeners are familiar with the fact that we work on moose and deer and bear and turkeys and species like that, but we're actually responsible for every single um, wildlife species in the state of Maine, and there's over 15,000 of them. Um, so everything from moose to mayflies is how we like to paraphrase that. Um, we're responsible for invertebrates. We're responsible for songbirds. We're responsible um, for for non game mammals, um, for reptiles, for amphibians. So... There's a lot of work that we do, uh, a lot of conservation work that we do um, that often kind of flies below the, the radar and isn't um, quite as high in, I think, the, the public awareness with regard to various conservation issues affecting wildlife in Maine. So with, you know, about 50 full-time staff in the Wildlife Division and responsibility for over 15,000 wildlife species across a landscape the size of Maine, um, you know, we need help and it's not, that's not something that we can tackle all by ourselves. And um, part of that is prioritizing and putting our very limited precious staff time um, into those species where it's most sorely needed. But part of that it also involves um, reaching out to the public and taking advantage of the interest that people in the state of Maine have for the wildlife in the state and the expertise that many of them have. And also the fact that they're widely distributed all across the state. So citizen science is, you know, put very simply, um, just a way for us to capture and take advantage of the, the interest and the expertise of, um, the people of the state of Maine to help us in our work conserving Maine's wildlife. Um, so that can take many, many forms, which I know we'll, we'll talk more about, but, um, at its simplest, it's simply using um, the knowledge that that Maine people have to help us with conserving Maine's wildlife.
1: Before we move on, um, there's a I think a common misconception. So I too went to to University of Connecticut Natural Resource Conservation, and one of the, and one of the things that was uh, stood out is the difference between conservation and preservation. And if you could. Delineate those two differences, because it's very, very different. The public often confuses preservation with conservation. So we're going to be talking about conservation for this hour. So maybe you could kind of give the listeners a a good um, little lecture on that.
2: Sure. Yeah, no, that's a great a great question. Um, so I think it's important to um, just think about Maine and the fact that, you know, even though we have a relatively small human population, there's still – over 1.3 million people in the state of Maine and the vast majority of the Maine landscape has been altered in some way by humans and continues to be altered, whether that's through forest management, through development, through agriculture, transportation networks. So fundamentally the starting point for the work that we do at IFNW is uh, a landscape that is, um, you know, impacted by people where the wildlife that exists needs to coexist with, with people. So, you know, in a, a completely unaltered environment, um, that's where we might look at something like preservation, where, um, the goal would be to keep all wildlife species and their habitats sort of intact and, um, unimpacted by humans. But in, in most cases, that's just not practical. It, it certainly, um is the approach that's taken in some um some park settings both state parks and national parks and ecological reserves where the goal is for for wildlife species and their habitats to exist essentially un unimpacted by humans but um for the vast vast majority of the state that's just not possible um so in that situation, we look at conservation, where essentially we're trying to balance the fact that we have people and their activities on the landscape with wildlife and try to um, manage wildlife and some human activities in a way that is compatible with one another. And so that's sort of a, you know, fundamentally the difference between preservation and conservation, we Uh we acknowledge that people are on the landscape. We acknowledge that they, you know, have had and continue to have, you know, impacts on wildlife and their habitats. And essentially we're trying to find a balance um between the people in Maine and the and the wildlife and the habitats that we have here.
1: So you're what you're trying to do is make sure that the wildlife is maintained. But our human actions allow them to maintain at the same time we can use the environment too. Exactly. Exactly. And I, maybe people have heard multi-use uh, technique. What What is that? What does multi-use mean?
2: Yeah. So, you know, in a multi-use landscape, um, it just like you like you shared, you're, you know, we're trying to um, allow multiple activities, whether it's recreation, whether it's, um, you know, uh, well thought out and well planned development um, in some locations, agriculture, forest management, to occur in a landscape um, with wildlife and their habitats um, in a manner that that wildlife, you know, continues to thrive.
1: So what's, getting back to the Kind of went, diverged a little bit away from the topic, but I wanted the, the our, our listeners to understand that, so the citizen science programs, uh, what is their purpose, and who can participate?
2: yeah, so they you know we have a number of citizen science projects, and again the, their fundamental purpose is to capture um, the the interest and the expertise of Maine. Citizens to help with wildlife conservation The different projects that we have all have slightly different goals um, In some cases we're looking for very specific information To aid in um, you know, relatively narrow management decisions So for example we have a, a deer spy project A citizen science project where we're looking for observations Of deer and their offspring to inform the number of any deer permits that we issue in a, in a given year. We have other projects like the Maine Bird Atlas or the Bumblebee Atlas where we are asking Maine residents to help us capture relatively basic information on the species that we have here in Maine in their distribution. Um, and those are kind of. Two good examples of the bookends, so to speak, of the citizen science projects that we have. Um, in some cases, there's very narrow goals and very specific information that will inform um, sort of a, a key management program. And In other cases, it's really baseline information on what exists in the state of Maine and where those species occur within the state.
1: And with that data, you guys can make decisions on management.
2: Absolutely. Conservation. Absolutely. We can determine, um, you know, over time as particularly for those projects that either occur over a long time period or those projects like the bird atlas where we might, we might conduct that, that work, that survey work every 20 or 30 years. We can look at long term trends and long term changes and use that to inform more focused conservation work. So, for example, if through one of our citizen science projects, we determine that a particular species has really declined over a 20-year period in their distribution or in their abundance, then that would cause us to um, consider investing more resources more resources into understanding the reasons for that decline and hopefully trying to come up with ways to reverse that decline.
1: Including altering human activity?
2: Potentially. potentially. If need be. Okay.
1: Yeah. You mentioned several times uh, this outreach program. Is you're trying to capture uh, the knowledge of the citizens. However, when I was reading your the wildlife, and uh, wildlife literature on these citizens group, it also emphasized that you don't have to know anything. So I want to make sure that listeners know that don't don't stop listening to this because yeah, oh, they, I don't I don't know anything about. I'm not an ornithologist, so I right. So give us a little yeah, bit. Of, they,
2: no, that's a great point. And, and again, some of our, some of our, our work, there certainly is a level of expertise required, but you're right. Um, some of our, our citizen science projects, if you can identify a white-tailed deer, which I think most people in Maine can, you can contribute. If you can identify a chickadee or a raven or a bald eagle, you can contribute. So, you know, we have a, again, a number of different projects and I think there's, um, an opportunity for pretty much every, everyone in Maine um, to contribute to one or more of them. Some of our, our projects are also set up in a way where there's um, sort of screening of the information that occurs either by our staff or other folks that we work with or have on contract. So even if, you know, that there, there might be some information that is, is submitted that may not be accurate, but there's a screening process so that we can go through and, confirm the accuracy of the information. And if, if someone believes they've seen a particular species, um, we can confirm that they've actually seen an individual of that species before we sort of capture that information and enter it into our, our permanent database. So they would, let's use an example
1: of a, of an unusual bird that shouldn't be here. So would one of your staff members actually contact Jane Doe, who saw it and recorded it and talked to him about it?
2: Yeah, so I think a good but example Absolutely. So our, our Butterfly Atlas, all of those records are they're verified by a, a butterfly expert. So we have uh, observations coming in from around the state from citizen scientists um, with varying levels of expertise at identifying butterflies. And those submissions are all reviewed by a butterfly expert to verify their accuracy.
1: And that goes pretty much for all these programs. Exactly. At, at certain levels, obviously. Right. Right. Your project is not as as diligent
2: <laughs> yeah we assume most people can tell a deer from uh,
1: yeah Holstein. i did notice on that butterfly project the form you know you had to mark down all the different habitats very specific but that was pretty logical but then it's then the other column is the species and i'm thinking oh <laughs> you
2: know, that's yeah, it's, that's tough I'm, I'm certainly no butterfly expert and um so we again, it's we're it's pretty imperative for projects like that to have experts in place that can review that information, and and but that that allows um members of the public with varying levels of expertise and and varying skill sets to still contribute, and we still have some checks in place to ensure the information is accurate.
1: Well, it's a lot of work.
2: It is. You know, it's that's a, a lot of work. It's a lot of work, but. You know, there's, there's no way that we could ourselves, you know, embark on a statewide survey um, for whether it's birds or butterflies or damselflies or any of the other um, projects we have underway. Um, you know, we really need to rely on uh, people of the state of Maine to contribute. And that's, that's the only way that we would ever even begin to have the resources to do projects like that.
1: This is Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. It's Dr. John Hunt, your host. We are on WERU 89.9 FM in East Orland. And we're having a outstanding uh, discussion with uh, Nate Webb, who is the Wildlife Division Director of the Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, talking about the uh, citizen science programs. And I'd like to get into a specific one. There's, there's kind of five or six. A big one is the main bird atlas program, and maybe we could you could talk about its purpose, its goals, um, who can volunteer, uh, and then we can talk about what atlas blocks are. That was kind of interesting. So, yeah, uh, I give I give the microphone to you, sir.
0: Sure. So the the bird
2: atlas is one of our certainly one of our flagship citizen science projects. Um, it's a it's a five year project that. Um, we, we try to do about every 30 years. Um, and the goal is actually pretty simple. It's simply to document the distribution and in some cases, the abundance of breeding and wintering birds across the entire state of Maine. So although that sounds simple, if you sort of step back and think about it for a minute, it's, it's a big, uh, it's a big ask. You know, we have hundreds of bird species. Um, we have a pretty large state by Eastern standards. We have, you know, coastal habitats, inland habitats. Um, and we're, we're really fortunate to have a wide diversity of, of bird species that, that breed or winter here in the state. We also have many, many species that migrate through and are present, um, only at certain, certain times of the year. You try to Um, capture, you try to capture those? We, we do. That, that's not the goal of the project per se, but we do capture those observations incidentally as well um, to, the, to the work that's focused on, on species that breed here or winter here. Um, so, the, you know, really the, the purpose or um, the utility of that information is for us to have long-term trend information on which species we have in the state, where they exist in the state, and whether um, species are sort of contracting in their distribution and becoming less abundant or expanding their distribution. And that's, you know, very basic fundamental information that we need to prioritize our conservation work. We can't, you know, with about 50 staff, work on every single species all the time. So we need to know which species require conservation attention so that we can focus our research work, our conservation work, et cetera. And the, the bird atlas is sort of the, the, the avenue that we have to gather that basic information on how various bird species are faring in the state of Maine. And, and there's a lot of changes that occur. You know, certainly climate change is a factor and there's many, many fact, many, many other factors that can impact how well birds are doing. Um, but without sort of really good information on what those trends are, it's challenging for us to know where our conservation efforts are, are best focused. So given the scope of, of that work, really the only way that we could achieve it is, is, um, taking advantage of, you know, the large number of Maine residents that have an interest in birds, um, and that have uh, even a, a basic skill set in identifying birds in Maine. And there's certainly many people in Maine that are avid birders and are extremely good at identifying birds as well. Um, so the, the bird atlas, it's it set up again as a five-year project across the state to gather observations of birds, um, both during the breeding season and during, during the winter to allow us to make comparisons to the the previous atlas that was done in the early 1980s. Um, So it's a massive, massive project. We have a biologist um, in our research and assessment section in Bangor, one of our our bird biologists that is the project director. We have a number of other um, folks on contract um, through Uh, organizations like Maine Audubon, Maine Natural History Observatory, and um, the Biodiversity Research Institute that we also work closely with. Uh, We have a steering committee of advisors that help guide the project, and then we have hundreds and hundreds of volunteers all across the state that have committed to volunteering their time and energy in various ways. Um, We have some folks that simply record and submit observations to us um, kind of following the guidelines and the data forms that we've provided. We have other volunteers that have adopted blocks, so to speak, and I can talk a little bit more about the blocks later on, but um, it's a way to kind of ensure that we have a good distribution of survey effort across the state and that not all of the survey work is focused in Southern and Coastal Maine, for example, where the vast majority of people live. Um, this is really a statewide Projects we need people to get out into the north Woods and get out into places where um, Humans aren't Quite as abundant on the landscape so Which
1: brings me to Statistics a little bit I'm thinking about this five years You have volunteers And over the five years you must have Varying um, numbers of volunteers Which If if that's the case I may be wrong on that Supposition but uh, If that's the case then you're going to have varying numbers of data collected. So how do you, is it just statistical analysis or you know, how do you account for that variability in observation and actually what's out there?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. So um, that issue is, is part of the reason we've, uh, we've divided the state into survey blocks and survey, a survey block is simply um, just a, a relatively small rectangular area um, Laid out in sort of a grid pattern across the entire state, and in order for uh, a survey block to to be completed um, so in other words, to have a a survey effort that is sufficient to um, document the species that occur in that block, there's a sort of a minimal baseline amount of volunteer survey effort that's required before that block is completed, and we consider it um, surveyed and um, that can, that effort can occur at any point during the five year period. But fundamentally, the information that we're gathering is presence data. Um, so if a bird species is observed in that block, um, and there's sort of various things that go into it. Um, again, we're looking at during the breeding season, evidence of breeding activity. Um, and there's a number of, Activities and behaviors that the volunteers look for to confirm whether this individual bird that they have seen is actually breeding or likely to be breeding in that area as opposed to just a migrant. And part of that is also related to the time of year when the observation occurs. But once that breeding activity for particular species has occurred, then it's, it's present. We know that species exists and is and breeding within that survey block um, at at the present time in the state of Maine. So um, it's quite different from some of our other projects where we're looking for trends in the abundance of species. The bird atlas is is really looking at distribution, which is much more straightforward to document. They're either there or they're not, or at least they're not observed. And once they're observed, um, we know they're there, and we can sort of move on to another species or another survey block and Make sure we're getting, we're getting sufficient effort to document all species across the entire state.
1: So these blocks are how big?
2: Um, I believe they're about two by three, uh, two miles by three miles. It might be a little bit off, but they're based on latitude and longitude. So, okay. um, yeah, but you know, relatively small. And we have some, a number of priority blocks. Um, those are often associated with conservation land, either um, public land that's in conservation or uh, our agency also owns a number of wildlife management areas. So many of the priority blocks are distributed um, or aligned with those conservation lands, Um, but they're also distributed more generally across the state, again, in an effort to ensure that we have a good distribution of survey effort and we don't end up with gaps in our knowledge regarding bird distribution when the project is finished. Um, so we spent a lot of time working with, with volunteers and volunteer coordinators on the project to make sure that we're at a minimum um, completing the surveys in those priority blocks. And the other uh, blocks that are not indicated as a priority, certainly receive survey effort, but those are kind of the second tier um, in terms of, where we try to direct effort for the project.
1: And how about along the borders of those blocks? You know, one guy is looking at a bird on one side of the street, and then they look on the other. I mean, is that is that a problem? Or It's not.
2: No, it's, it's, it's sort of a, it's in or it's out. It's in the block, and or it's not in the block. And um, if it's observed within the block, then it's present. It's in the block. <laughs> as simple as that. And, and, <laughs> and you'll, you'll notice a theme there with a lot of our citizen science projects because of the the nature of the data and the nature of the assistance that, you know, we're asking for, they're structured in a way um, that is sort of robust to varying levels of, um, you know, s- skills and levels of effort by the volunteers. So we need to have a a project framework that allows as many people as possible to contribute and Um, doesn't end up being so complicated and complex that people are sort of turned away initially or the data that we receive, you know, can't be used. So it needs to be, you know, relatively straightforward and, and set up in a way that we can receive that information efficiently and kind of roll it up into information that's useful. So you'll, you'll notice that's a pretty common theme across all these projects is they're, they're set up in a way that is hopefully User friendly for the public, but also user user friendly for us to to capture and analyze that information when uh, the data are submitted.
1: Is the um, is the five years going on now?
2: Yeah, we're in actually year four of five. Oh, okay. Um, okay, so it's it's been a great success. Um, again, hundreds and hundreds of volunteers were making excellent progress, achieving achieving the goals and. Um, completing survey effort and all those priority blocks. So um, it's, it's been great. There's been a huge amount of interest by, by the public. Um, we're fortunate in Maine to have a, a lot of really avid birders, and um, I think many of them just love this project and the ability to contribute to something that really is part of a much bigger effort and uh, I think will prove to be very important for bird conservation in Maine in the long run.
1: And you mentioned that uh breeding season uh and i guess non breeding season so are, are, are there certain times a year that the volunteers are out or is it is it twenty four seven
2: yeah so most of the most of the work um again there's sort of two components um breeding birds and wintering birds, so naturally the wintering birds that's in the the winter period um The breeding season, you know, most species in the state of Maine are breeding during the months of, um, breeding and and rearing offspring during the months of June and July. That does vary quite a bit by species. So for purposes of the bird atlas, we've established what we call safe dates. And those are essentially dates within which, and they vary by species. Um, if a bird is observed, In the state of maine during those safe dates it's very likely that it's not a migrant um it's very likely that it actually is here and is breeding and rearing offspring in the state of maine and again that varies from species to species but in most cases it includes the months of june and july um, extends into may for some species or even earlier and extends into august for others so um, June is sort of prime time for, uh, the breeding portion of the bird atlas. That's when the vast majority of bird species that are observed are likely here in the state and breeding in the state at that time of the year. So that's the, that's the busiest month for sure. But certainly, um, there's survey work that occurs in, in May and in, in July and even in August for some species.
1: And do the volunteers have resources they can use? Um, the infamous YouTube. Is that
0: a,
2: they, they in terms do. of helping them um, identify? <clears throat> yeah, we, you know, we have compiled and I, I, I want to give a shout out to Adrian Leppold who again is the, our staff person who's managing the Bird Atlas and is the project director. Um, you know, she has, you know, working with many other folks um, as well, but has pulled together an unbelievable amount of resources for the bird atlas and for the volunteers. So um, there's certainly information to help participants with bird identification, um, but there's a whole host of other resources as well to help the volunteers kind of navigate the project, submit the information, which is all all done through eBird electronically, um, which makes it efficient for us to capture that data and, and ultimately analyze it. Um, there's a number of web-based mapping platforms that Adrian has worked with some of our um, GIS staff to develop. So there's, um, I have a binder that's, I'm not even sure, it's very thick um, <laughs> that, I, that I refer to from time to time that outlines all the parameters and the resources that are available to participants in the bird atlas. Um, but you're absolutely right. There's certainly information that's readily available to help with bird identification as well. And, so not to worry. Will, yeah, not to worry. And I, I will <laughs> admit, I'm I'm not a particularly good birder, and I still have a long way to go with my bird ID skills. But um, the resources are pretty easy to find, which makes it a little easier.
1: My listeners may have recognized Adrian's name. She she has been a guest on our, on my program uh, with regard to bird feeders and that sort of thing. She's uh, she's uh, Jewel.
0: She's she is.
2: Yeah, she's great. She's lucky great. to have boundless energy. We're very fortunate.
1: Now, does this uh, once all this data is collected? how much of that is um, available to the public or for someone who's a grad student at UMO?
2: Yeah, you know, really it, it's all basically available. Um, in fact, we do our best to make it available um, as the project occurs. So on the main Bird Atlas website, there, there are, as I mentioned, maps and information um, compiling the data that has been submitted to date and um, I mentioned the, the fact that the data are submitted through eBird and that allows us to capture that, that information and summarize it very efficiently and we've been able to keep up with that as the project unfolds and really have been able to share the results with participants and with anyone else that's, uh, that's interested um, as the project has been underway.
1: How is the um there's something I read about sponsor species? Is that related to the Bird Atlas or is that something else?
2: It is, it is. So that's uh essentially a, a fundraising um oh, activity good. that that supports some elements of the project. Um so I should mention that although the Bird Atlas it, it's is led by IFNW, there are many other partners involved. And um for our portion of the project, we use primarily um a federal grant. Um, funding from a federal grant program called Pittman-Robertson, which actually comes from excise taxes on firearms and ammunition. Um, So that's the primary funding source that that we have. Um, We are required to match that funding either with uh, actual cash or with in-kind contributions. So all of the volunteer effort that's put into the project, we ask those volunteers to record and submit their hours, and we're able to use that donated time as match for the federal grant that we have that pays for sort of the the, the expenses that require you know, sort of cash. Um, but there's there's other elements to the project and other conservation partners um, that require have required additional funding, and so the. Sponsor species is one of the ways that um, the larger project has done some fundraising to to generate some of those funds to support the work.
1: So, someone's interested in this. Um, how many hours? There's a there's something I was hearing about or read 20, 20 hours of observation in the morning and night. I mean, what? So, if, if someone is listening to this and says, gee, I want to do that. Uh, but I don't want to spend all of June day in and right. day out. I mean, so what's yeah. So the,
2: what's the commitment? Yeah, the nice thing, there really isn't any commitment. You know, a single observation is useful. Um, and e- you're right. the The minimum uh, survey effort for a block to be considered completed is 20 hours, but that's that's cumulative survey effort. So that could be by 20 different people that have each spent oh, an hour surveying okay. the unit. Um, you know, we have many staff, myself included, that just, you know, we record and submit random observations. We're out doing other work. We're out on, you know, on a weekend and, and see a bird and submit the record and, and that data is captured and is useful, even though there's, there's really minimal effort required um, to do that. So any observation is useful and um, is entered into the database and contributes to the project. So there's, there's really no commitment required. You know, certainly, um, we love to have people that adopt a block and say to us, I will get that block done, whatever it takes, whether it's me or my friends or my neighbors or family members, we'll make sure we put in that minimum survey effort. But a lot of the the data comes in from, from folks that just submit sort of random observations. They're out for a walk, um, they see a couple bird species and submit the data and that, that contributes as well.
1: Now, correct me if I'm wrong, um, I haven't thought about this in a while. Chris on Christmas or is it New Year's? There's a bird count. Christmas bird count. I think cow. is it Audubon that sponsors that? That's right. Do you yep. use that information?
2: We do. We do. There's quite oh, a good, good. there's overlap. Yeah. So oh that's good. A, they share. Yeah, that's they a long term annual survey. That's that's national. And um, but there's there's overlaps. So we're able to, to use some of that information as well.
1: Oh good. Good. It's good to hear. Also in an, an application. You implied funds. that volunteers don't get paid.
2: No, they don't. No, they're they're, they're volunteers, strictly volunteers. Um, because but there's, there's still there's still quite a bit, you know, of of, uh, of funding required. We do have some paid technicians, um, um, and in a lot of cases, those technicians are doing. Um, other types of survey work associated with a project to try to get at uh, abundance um, and that's those are more sort of rigorous complicated survey protocols that require a great deal of consistency and um, a higher level of, of training um, and we also use those paid technicians to go into many of the more remote areas of the state where it's just challenging to get you know volunteers to go, up in the St. John and the Alagash to, to survey some of those blocks. So um, a lot of the funding goes towards those those technicians. Um, I mentioned we also have some some contracts with some other conservation organizations to help with project management, some of the statistical analysis, some of the mapping and the volunteer coordination. So it um, you know we're certainly getting Tens of thousands of hours of volunteer time, and that is uh, at no cost to the agency or to any of our funding sources. But there are some pretty significant other expenses that we we do need funding for.
1: And on the other thing, on the on the uh, application, was a thing about liability and uh, insurance. So it seems like the state is insuring you when you're out there counting birds. Is that
2: accurate? That's right. That's right. So volunteers have the option of accepting or declining that, and it's accident insurance, um, but we have a, a policy and that, that covers all of our volunteers um, that, that, that choose to take advantage of it that would, would cover them in the event of an accident while they're volunteering
0: for the project. That's right. Uh,
1: one of the things that got me to think about having you on, uh, something came over in my email, and it was the Turkey survey. Now that seemed a little different than is this part of a citizen science program or is this something uh different no, So it is. is the turkey it's it's Christmas now this this show is going to be aired during Christmas so talk let's talk turkey a little bit
2: Yeah for sure so yeah we have an annual turkey brood count um occurs in August every year and um it is actually it's 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 relatively straightforward it's simply Trying to gather information on productivity and reproduction by wild turkeys, um, and so during that 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 month, um, we uh, love to get observations of hen turkeys and their offspring, their poults from the year, and we use that information to to gauge um, reproduction and productivity in the turkey population, and ultimately use that to. Help assess hunting regulations for turkeys um, for both the spring and the and the fall hunting seasons and distribution um, so distribution too i assume absolutely absolutely and you know in fact you know we we also because we have the bird atlas underway we're we're getting information on turkeys as part of that as well, but um, you're absolutely right as part of the brood count survey, which is a long term project we've had that um, started well before this most recent version of the bird atlas, we do get good information on turkey distribution as well as the, the reproductive side of things.
1: Well, I'm going to be a volunteer here for a second. Uh, and I don't know if you've heard about the turkeys, but my observation last year, we had 27 pults with three adults uh, in our back area. And then this year we had two, two pulse. And I heard from other people, that I knew that they've observed the same thing. Did you know right. anything about that?
2: No. Um, yeah, I've had some some uh, personal observations. Certainly, um, you know, one of the reasons we do those brood counts is that turkey reproduction um, and sort of nesting success is highly variable based on weather conditions. Um, so a lot of rainy, wet weather in the spring um, results in higher levels of nest loss, um, um, due to the weather and then, um, weather that promotes, um, insects during, uh, the months of July and August, which is, you know, primary food source for turkeys and for poults during that time period that can affect the survival of those offspring as well so there is a great deal of variation from year to year based on those weather conditions um, and their impacts on turkeys in terms of what we see for productivity um, during that brood count effort in the, in the fall so I actually haven't seen the results of that work from our turkey biologists um, for this year yet but I expect I will fairly soon it'll be interesting to see how it compares to previous year's um, and also, how much variation there is across the state naturally there 's parts of the state that um can get wetter weather in June, others get drier weather, and that often is reflected in those those turkey brood counts that we that we receive
1: so that 's the great the weather during nesting is the greatest uh cause of death or the other It's a, it's, a, it's a huge factor
2: absolutely they
1: get wet or whatever right wow. Okay, we'll see what happens. See if yours and my expert observations that's right <laughs> coincide yeah. with the other experts. <laughs>
2: that's right. So it's always interesting. You know, it's it's always neat to see how well your own personal observations match up with what the the data actually show when it's compiled from across the state. Some it, it seems like it often does, but sometimes. What I seem to see in my travels is, is completely different from
0: what. <laughs> what I and so, so that's, you keep,
2: and that's you know the this natural variability and and, yeah. and things like sample size and um, sometimes what what we observe personally um, isn't all that indicative of what's really going on out there, which is why we we do projects like this um, and don't make decisions or recommendations based on just sort of what we see ourselves.
1: So, in your position, it's best to stay quiet about your personal
2: observations. That's right. Yeah, usually they're meaningless. So
1: you you carry a lot of weight, so you don't want to say anything.
2: Yeah, I try not to make any um, <laughs> prognostications, so to speak.
1: Another a project uh, I know Brad Allen has been on my show, um, and he, I think he's gotten interested in the um, the shorebird shorebirds i think uh there's a river bird project Uh, how is that different from the the atlas yeah that's fascinating in maine
2: yeah the river bird project it's a really neat one um so another of our our bird biologists, aaron call actually oversees that that project and that's some work that she started actually started a number of years ago as part of her her phd work at the university of maine has kind of continued it um with her her work for IFNW since she was hired on a number of years ago. Um, That project is looking at changes in the distribution of um, various bird species in relation to presence and absence of dams, changes in in water levels and habitats in riparian areas. Um, So... If you think about it, there you know, there's a lot of changes that have occurred to main rivers over over the years. There's been dams that were built, there's dams that have been removed, there's um sea run fisheries that have declined and then increased. Um, and the the presence or, or absence of dams can certainly have an impact on on the distribution and abundance of some of those species. And so that project, it's really it's more of um I would characterize it more of a research project that's trying to help us understand how those changes that occur over time in rivers in Maine impact various bird species um, that are dependent on the rivers for, um, you know, as a source of food or or sort of integral to some portion of their life cycle. So. It's a, it's a long-term effort, and, um, again, it's some work that Aaron has been doing for quite a while. But it is pretty interesting to see some of the changes to bird species, species assemblages that occur as rivers change and, um, and those habitat conditions change in those riparian systems.
1: So awesome. A lot of this is habitat. It is. Uh, it is information. Pollution. Um, Hydro energy, all that stuff
2: absolutely absolutely,
1: wow. well, how about the shorebirds is there there is there a separate project for shorebirds that's a pretty big
2: yeah, area. so we have um you know shorebirds are you know kind of a, a jewel for the state of maine you know we um, are are kind of a key stop in the in the migratory route for a number of shorebird species, um, but we also are a pretty integral component of um the habitat available for piping plovers um, along the along the East Coast. So, piping plovers are a species that you know has has really been challenged over the years due to very limited habitat. They they nest on sandy beaches, which are a limited habitat. You know, uh, in Maine and in pretty much every case, um, are pretty well used by people. People like to go to the beach, so. That We have um, many, many volunteers that contribute to our conservation work on piping plovers, um, both in terms of some of the survey work that we do, but also in terms of um, actually doing some hands-on conservation for those species in terms of public outreach and trying to essentially manage public use of those beach those beaches in a way that's compatible with piping plovers during their their nesting season and that's been a huge success um i think it's been the past three years now we have had a record setting numbers of of piping plover pairs nest and produce offspring on beaches in maine so um really a huge conservation success story uh they still have a ways to go but uh, we're pretty proud of that work, and it, it is due in significant part to many, many volunteers that that help us out.
1: And the, the general public, don't you have to? Uh, uh, you you have the nest cordoned off, so to speak, That's like right. they do down in Florida for the turtles. Exactly. Uh, and and the public is generally cooperating.
2: Very. They do. They do. They really do. Um, I and
1: I applaud they. the public. That is amazing.
2: It's, it's it's it really is, and you know every year we we cross our fingers that those the chicks fledge from the beaches before the Fourth of July, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. because that that can be a little bit hectic when you have these little tiny plover chicks, you know the size of kind of uh. a cotton ball, running around amidst amidst the chaos that can occur on the Fourth of July on beaches in Maine, particularly when the weather is good. So uh, that's always what we're we're aiming for, and um, but uh, that. You know that species without all the volunteer support that we get, you know, really would not be doing as as well as it is.
1: Uh, Hats off to you guys for getting that out to the public for support. I think, uh, especially Maine, I think we're more aware of of trying to keep our wildlife around.
2: I, I think you're right, and you know, I'm I feel thankful every day that to work in a state like Maine where wildlife and the outdoors in general are such a big part of the public consciousness. It seems like everybody cares. Um, yeah. and everybody has, you know, some, some degree of connection to wildlife. And, um, we don't, we don't have to struggle to, to find support. Um, it, it's just something that's important to people in Maine, which uh, makes our work a lot easier.
1: You mentioned the beginning of the show, uh, you're responsible for every species um, of animal. And that's a tall order. Uh, the ones I, I'm concerned about are the amphibians and the reptiles uh, and some of the insects, especially amphibians and reptiles. They're endangered worldwide, the frogs and that sort of thing. And I think you do have some citizen science programs for those. Uh, and are we, are you leaning towards um as a, a as a state agency, preservation uh, for these more than conservation?
2: Um, No, no, not really. Um, Like you mentioned, many of our amphibian and reptile species are um, at risk in the state of Maine for a variety of reasons. Um, Amphibians in particular are, are quite vulnerable to various forms of environmental contamination. There's also been a number of, um, diseases globally that have impacted amphibians, um, that are you know, very challenging for us to, to deal with. Um, they're also relatively immobile, um, which means they, they can't fly out of the way all that easily. And they're, some of those species are quite vulnerable to, to mortality on roadways from vehicles and, and that sort of thing. And in many cases, um, those amphibian reptile species are, are, are habitat specialists. They, they have very, um, specific habitat requirements and without, um, without those habitats, they they really just can't survive and, and can't exist in the state of Maine and, um, again, they're not like a bird that migrates or that can fly over to the next habitat patch. They move pretty slow and they have short legs and so to speak. And they also, um, the amphibians in particular, have pretty complex life cycles. They're in, you know, often, um, you know, spending time both on land and in the water and kind of require a pretty diverse suite of of habitats that all need to be in good condition for them to survive. So, there's certainly some conservation challenges with, with many of our amphibian and reptile species. Those challenges are, are shared across the region. Um, they're not limited to just Maine. Um, we are fortunate though that, you know, thinking Maine really has um, some of the most intact, high quality habitat that's, that's available in this part of the country. So it's not all doom and gloom. Um, we do have a number of species that are that are thriving in Maine, at least on a, a relative basis in comparison to how they're doing in other states. The wood turtle is a good example. Um, you know, they are species that, you know, there's some conservation concern in Maine, but overall they're doing relatively well, um, especially in relation to their status in other states in the Northeast. We're pretty fortunate. So, so
1: for, for volunteers, they have to actually go out and look for them, right? That's, yeah, so we have a,
2: a Maine amphibian and reptile atlasing project Mayrap for short and it's it's uh pretty similar to our, our bird atlas but focused on amphibians and reptiles um that's another example where you know really people across the state can snap a photo of a, an amphibian or reptile that they observe and submit it to iNaturalist in this case is the the platform that we use and those records are are reviewed and verified by one of our staff people and, and that really helps us understand the distribution of various species across the state and over time lets us determine whether species are kind of holding their own or uh, maybe declining and requires more focused conservation attention.
1: And one last question before we uh, go, because we're almost out of time. Uh what do you see, what are your plans for the future? What is the Inland Fisheries Division? What are they in terms of citizen groups and monitoring animals and that sort of thing? What are you looking at? Anything new like drones and all that kind of stuff?
2: Yeah, well, d- drones are certainly, we've we, we taken an interest in, in drones. They likely have some applications for some of our work. Um, you know, I think fundamentally we'll um, certainly continue. Many of our citizen science projects we will continue to reach out and, and ask the people of Maine for help as we have various programs that, that come online. Um, as I mentioned, the bird Atlas is in year four or five. So after next year, that project will kind of taper off. We'll be back at it in 20 or 30 years though. So <laughs> there, there will be continued opportunities, um, on many of the projects we have underway now, and also certainly some new ones coming online in the next few years.
1: So always something on something in, in the, the works, huh?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely.
1: Well, we've, we've run out of time. Uh, Nate Webb of the Wildlife Division is, he's the Wildlife Division Director, Department of Inland Fisheries and Wildlife, talking to us about the citizen science programs. Thank you so much for the time uh, that you spent with us. I'm sure the listeners, uh, are more, now more aware of what's going on, uh, with what you guys are doing.
2: Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks so much for having me.
1: This is Dr. John Hunt for Let's Talk Animals from Aardvarks to Zebras. And until next time, remember, enjoy your pets and don't forget to give them a hug.
0: Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from the Green Store in Belfast, helping to support Community Solar and Sierra Club, Maine. Details at greenstore.com. You're listening to WERU FM 89.9 Blue Hill and on the web at WERU.org. Welcome to 2021 Talks, where we are following our democracy in historic times. We know some student loan borrowers are still coping with the pandemic and need some time before resuming payments. The Biden administration is extending the moratorium on federal student loan repayments until May. Loan payments were set to resume in February after being on hold since the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic. With no guarantee of blanket loan forgiveness on the horizon, White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says borrowers should take the additional 90 days to prepare for the moratorium's eventual end. I would also note for all the student, those who have student loans out there, uh, the president also renewed his call for all student loan borrowers to do their part as well by taking full advantage of the Department of Education's resources, considering income-based repayment plans or public service loan forgiveness. Meanwhile, President Joe Biden met with a White House task force to discuss ongoing supply chain issues ahead of the holidays. FedEx CEO Fred Smith told the president the nation has largely avoided a holiday supply chain crisis
2: the supply
1: chain issues are not all solved but there's a lot of effort underway to solve them and we're optimistic that people will have a good peak season and uh, most of uh, santa claus's products will be delivered to the consumers